Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Today we have to deal with a very, very difficult word. And that word is, that's how we're going to feel at the end of this. We'll all be crying. The word is person. And you might first think that's one of the easiest words there is. <laughs> we all know what a person is, but that's what makes it difficult. If I were to ask you, define person, you would say, well, a person is a human self. That's how we would define it, a human self. You could point at anyone in this room and say, this is a person. This is a person. These are people. I'm a person. Kathy's a person. We're people. So we have a definition in our mind. And it's true. It's true. The problem is person is also a word that for about 2,000 years we have been using as Christians to talk about how God exists as one God in three somethings. And we've chosen the term person, not because it's the best word, as we'll see, but that has been the word that we've chosen. It's a fine word. But the danger is that we take our understanding of the English word person and then we confuse our theological use of the term person when we're talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because even the English word person, it comes from the Latin persona, but both with the English and with the Latin, these were not languages the New Testament's written in. And so these are terms that we have chosen. And they're the terms you have to use. You can't pick really a different term at this point. It's been so many years. So we have to use person. And yet the difficulty is that we use person to mean other things too. So what we're getting at here with the use of person, most simply put, is we believe in accordance with the scriptures that there is only one God. This is not just Old Testament. New Testament teaches the same thing. Paul says, for there is one God when he writes to Timothy. That's Paul. So there's only one God that makes us what we call monotheists. We believe, like the Jewish people, we believe there's only one God. However, unlike the Jewish people, because of the revelation given us in Scripture, we believe that this God exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, therefore, is a person of the Godhead, and that's what we're going to get at in this class since we're speaking of the Holy Spirit. He is a person of the Godhead. But you can see right away how this is easy for us to confuse because we said that we use the term person to usually refer to a human self. The Holy Spirit is not a human. So you immediately have to cross out that definition. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The same if you say, okay, not human, but just a self. But the way we understand self is I'm a self and Kathy here is a self and the rest of you are selves. And that makes two beings. I'm a person who's a being. She's a person who's a being. We have no way to understand two persons who somehow are one being. So if you only use the word person the way you're familiar with it, you'll see that it adds confusion to thinking about the Holy Spirit as a person of God. To make this as simple as possible, I would have to say, 
Here's the mystery of it. We don't know what person means. <laughs> we don't know. Christians for 2,000 years have striven, have tried to understand what person means. The greatest minds that Christianity's ever produced have written long treatises upon it. And there is stuff that we can say about it, hence the class today. But I just want to get out there up front. You say, a person, I know person. You don't know person in theology. We don't really know what person means. It was the church father Augustine who, apart from Scripture itself, is most responsible for helping us understand what Scripture teaches about the Trinity. It was Augustine in about the 400s who said, we use the term, he didn't use person, he wasn't speaking English, but I'll put that in there to paraphrase him. He said, we use this term, person here, so that we have at least something to say instead of nothing. <laughs> so, and that was in the middle of a very long treatise saying something about what persons could mean. So it's not that we have nothing at all, it's just there is a humility we have to have in thinking about the persons of the Trinity. Person, like I said in English, comes from Latin persona. In the Greek, there were different words that were used. So the Greek writers, it was part of the conflict in the early, early church between Greek writers and Latin writers and what's a person and what does this mean? And they had different words they used. But really, I just want you to understand when we use the term person, keep using it. Don't use a different one. That's the one we use. But that's not a term in the Bible. It's not in the New Testament. At times, a word might be translated that, but not the theological term. It's a term that we've chosen. It's just a stand-in term for saying that we believe in one God and He exists as three what's, three blanks, three something. And so we use the term person to describe that. So the Trinity can be stated simply like this. There's one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if we wanted to then think of person simply, it is whatever distinction there is between the Father and the Son and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit and the Father. Because the Father is God and the Holy Spirit is God and the Son is God, but the Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not the Son. The Son is not the Father. It's a mystery to us how this works, but there is in some way some distinction between these three persons, and we just use the word person to indicate that there's some distinction between them. What the distinction is is very difficult for us to grasp, but we know that there is one. Now, you might think, well, this is just some heady theology. How is this even relevant to my life? Well, how else are you going to read your Bible if you don't have a concept like this? When you're reading the Gospel of John and in the span of four chapters, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Then go four chapters. The Father is greater than I. What are you going to do with that? You're going to just ignore that that's there? You have to be able to have some way of thinking about God as one, such that the Son and the Father are one, but also that Jesus can say things like the Father's greater than I. And we could go into all that that means. We won't right now. But you need to wait, a way to say that they are one and yet there is some distinction remarkably within the Godhead. Why does this matter for our class today? Because like I said, we'll be spending 10 classes 
on the work of the Holy Spirit, which we can see in Scripture, easier to grasp. But before we do that, we need to have a solid understanding, best we can, of who the Holy Spirit is. We know He's God, and we talked about that last week, and I hope you're absolutely convinced of that. But it's not just that the Holy Spirit is God, it's that He exists as one person of a triune God. And that's different than Him just being God. So we're spending our class today talking about what it means that the Holy Spirit is a person of the Godhead, hence this whole discussion of person. And as we'll see, this just puts a focus on what's distinct about the Holy Spirit between Him and the other persons of the Godhead. This is important because it helps us to remember that the Holy Spirit is not the Father. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. This also helps us to remember if He is a person of the Godhead and He is God, then He's not an impersonal force. He's not an energy. As many people think He is, He's not an energy. You say, well, what is He? He is a person of the Godhead. That's what He is. So what we're going to do today is like what we did last week. The first thing we want to do is establish this fact, what I'm saying, even if the term person's not in the Bible, this concept is, I want to show that to you from Scripture, not making it up, and then we want to apply it. Say, why does this matter in your day-to-day -day life? So let's begin by establishing from Scripture that the Holy Spirit is a person of the Godhead. He is not the Father. He is not the Son. Let me show you this, like I said, Matthew 3. We are looking at the baptism of Jesus. This is probably the best passage to demonstrate this claim that he's a person of the Godhead. Matthew chapter 3, Jesus at the outset of his ministry is being baptized by John the Baptist. And when he comes up from the water, we read verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus, that's God the Son, was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. There is God the Holy Spirit. So there's two persons of the Godhead. And coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. And if the voice, not named, is speaking of his son, then who is the voice? Who's speaking in the voice? The father. If that's his son, he's the father. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. In this passage, you have the three persons of the one Godhead interacting with each other. In time, before our view, all three. So let me ask you, can you say in this passage that the Father descended like a dove on the Son? No, it's not what the passage says. So, well, he's one God, it's true, but notice the Spirit. And you are supposed to think of it that way, not as the Father descending like a dove. You're supposed to think of the Spirit descending like a dove. Was the Holy Spirit baptized in the Jordan River? No. The Son was baptized, and the Father speaks, 
and says, this is my beloved son. You could not have the son in heaven speaking and saying, the father there is my beloved son. It's not that way. So you see in this passage, and it is a mystery to us, so I hope you feel confused and challenged by it, but you can see it in that passage. How else will you understand this? The three persons of the one Godhead are interacting with each other in a way that's simply not reversible. It has to be this way. Some people have tried to understand, because again, it's a hard concept, have tried to understand the Trinity by saying that the Trinity is really just God, the one God, putting on different masks. Now I'm the Father. Now I'm the Son. Now I'm the Holy Spirit. We call this modalism. It's like God has different modes. And if it's any interest to you, you can ignore it if it's not. Even the term person, coming from the Latin persona, is unfortunate and has led to confusion because the Latin word persona, you know what it actually means? It means masks. <laughs> we speak of a persona, which is kind of the mask you put on in a circumstance. So that's an example of how our words can be confusing. And so some people have followed that. Some have been led even by just the word itself, so don't do that, to a kind of modalism, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But you see that this passage immediately debunks any sense of modalism because you can't have the Father now, the Son now, the Holy Spirit now because you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all present at the same time. You could say, well, because He's God, He can do all three at the same time. But then you really just have a sort of mock play that's not really sincere or genuine where God is pretending to interact with himself if there's no distinction at all whatsoever. And then these words, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, become irrelevant. They're not necessary if it's really just the Father interacting with the Father and the Father descends on the Father. There is some distinction. So modalism, the masks, is not true. What do you do with Matthew 3, 16 and 17? You don't understand it. <laughs> we don't understand it. But if you don't want to misunderstand it, you have to have some concept of three persons, one Godhead. Let me give you another biblical proof for this, that the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. There was a great debate in the ancient church. When you read about it, you'll scratch your head. Many of the debates of the ancient church are that way. You read them, and there was so much fire and fervor over them, and you think, why did that matter? <laughs> Actually, the great schism that took place between the Eastern and Western church around AD 1000, massive schism, was precipitated by this massive debate, something you probably never thought about. It was this question. Was the Holy Spirit sent by the Father? Or was the Holy Spirit sent by the Father and the Son? That split the whole church. One said by the Father, the other said the Father and the Son. Now, that is actually more complicated than it sounds, and we're not going to get into it. It has more to do with the ontology or being of God and all of this stuff. But if we're just talking about the interaction of God in time, the way we can see it in Scripture, it's very clear that the Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son. John 14, 26 speaks of the Spirit. Jesus says, whom the Father will send in my name. Father sends him in my name. So he's sent by the Father. But Jesus says in the next chapter, 15, 26, the Spirit whom I will send to you from the Father. So what is it? The 
Father from me. Yes, it's both. In time, from the Father and from the Son. Now let me ask you a question. Could the Holy Spirit have sent the Father into the world? No. No. It wouldn't have been appropriate. How do you know it wouldn't have been appropriate? Because he didn't do it. Instead, the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit. So like I said, person is the stand-in word that just refers to what's distinct about the Spirit. And if you really press into that and try to say, well, what's distinct about the Spirit? He's fully God. He has all the attributes of God. There's no difference in any of that. We would say, really, the distinction comes down to the relation that the Spirit has to the other persons. And what's that relation? It's presented to us in Scripture this way. And this is going to take a lot of your mind, okay? So you just got to wrestle with this, okay? In time, the Spirit is the one who is sent. He does not send the Father or Son. He is sent by the Father and the Son. In time, on Pentecost, He sent. Now, the only thing we can really know between those distinctions between Father, Son, and Spirit is by following this line of thinking. If the Spirit is the one sent rather than the one sending, then there must be something, something we can't comprehend about the Spirit eternally. For all time, before there was even a world, something about the Spirit, unique from the Father and Son, that leads to the fact that in time, He's the one sent. Does that make sense? This is tough, but this is, you got to think about this. Because the Father is not sent. The Father sends the Spirit. So in time that happens, and we trace it up and say before time, I mean, before this world as we know it, when we're just thinking of God himself in all eternity, there is something true of the Spirit that is not true of the Father or the Son that leads to the fact that in time, the Spirit is sent rather than sending. That might seem confusing, confusing but that's all we know if you really want to press in to say what's the difference between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's all we know. We don't even know what it is. We just know it's something that leads to that. So that he is the sent. That's the relation. That's the difference in relation. Is that he is sent. You might say, oh, this is so confusing and odd. But again, you already know this because just think. Would you ever say the Holy Spirit begat the Father? You would never say it. Even though we understand begat is a, an eternal begetting. It's not that the Father at one point literally begat the Son and He started to exist. No, nope, no Arians here. That did not happen. It's eternal. Begetting, when we talk of Father and Son, is again, just a matter of relation. And it's something beyond us, but it's just a way of saying the Father's the Father and the Son's the Son, and it's not reversed. And we're saying the same thing with the Holy Spirit here. He is sent. He's not the one who sends. He is sent. So there's something distinct. Again, I'm just trying to show you from Scripture and reasoning 
that the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. They're all God. They're all fully God. They're all one. And yet there's a distinction. What is that distinction? I don't know. I don't know. But whatever it is, it leads to the Spirit being sent and not being the one who sends. So I hope whether you remember any of that reasoning or not, doesn't matter. But the point I'm trying to make from Scripture is that the Holy Spirit is a person, and that means that He is not the Father and He is not the Son. Not identically in that way. There is a distinction. Now, in claiming that the Spirit is a person of the triune God, I also want to make very clear that the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. So we're shifting gears for a second here. The Holy Spirit, if he's a person of the Godhead, it means he is fully God, and God is not an impersonal force. Now, this is the one I really have to press, and like I said maybe last week, two weeks ago, the goal of this class is you get to the end of the class and you refer to the Spirit not as an it, but as a he. <laughs> and it can be hard to do. Got to remind ourselves, he is a he. The Holy Spirit is a he. Not a force, not an it, but a he. And I'm going to use this term even though it's just going to confuse things, but it's fine. He has, if he is a person, we can speak of him, confusing terms a little bit, as having a personality. And that will come back later why that's important. But I'm just, what I mean by that is you can't have a relationship with a force. As cool as the force is in Star Wars, that comes from Eastern mysticism, not Christianity. The Holy Spirit is not the force. He's not a world force. The Holy Spirit is a person of the Godhead. It means he's God. He has what we could call personality. And let me show you this again from Scripture. So not only is he not father or son, he's unique here, but also he's not a force. Because tell me if forces, impersonal forces, can do any of these things. Ephesians 4.30, the Holy Spirit can be grieved. Now, if you have fallen from a ladder, sorry about that, I'm sorry about that, gravity, the force that pulled you to the ground, maybe broke your arm, gravity didn't care. Gravity didn't say, tomorrow I will lessen the pull because I just feel so bad that I've caused this harm in your life. Gravity doesn't care. Gravity is an impersonal force. That's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can be grieved in a way that a force cannot. Hebrews 10.29 goes further and says the spirit can be outraged. A force cannot. Maybe one of the easier ways to remember this is that the Holy Spirit in Scripture is presented as speaking. Here's Acts 13.2 when Paul and Barnabas are sent on their first missionary journey. Quote, the Holy Spirit said... Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And when you read Revelation 2 and 3, those seven letters to the churches of Asia, the refrain repeated over and over is, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit speaks. And I think for us, this point is worth making because it's easier for us to think of the person of the Father as personal in this sense. Because Father to us if you had a good father, can connote the idea of warmth and protection and fatherly love. And same when we think of the son. We know what a son is and a son's reactive love to the father. And we know Jesus, the son, of course, took on flesh, so it's very easy to think of him as personal. 
But then you come to spirit, and it's just harder to think of the spirit as personal in that way, as a person of the Godhead who can be interacted with. But he is not a force. He is as much a person of the Godhead as the Father and the Son. So we interact with the Father and the Son, and we interact with the Spirit. Still here? Still with me? Has a lot of theology to work through. Now comes the point when we need to apply this. Why does this matter? And I just want to make one application like I did last week. If the Holy Spirit is not the Father or Son, if He's not an impersonal force, if He is a person of the Godhead, you can uniquely know the Holy Spirit, and you should. You can know Him. You can interact with Him, not just as God generally, but even more specifically, you can interact consciously with the Holy Spirit, just like you do with the Son of God in your worship and in your prayer, just like you do with the Father. You think of Him, the Father. Not because he's not God like the Son or any of that, but you think of him uniquely, the Father. But it's rare for us to put our focus upon knowing and cherishing and worshiping and treasuring the Holy Spirit. But you can know him. He is a person of the Godhead. We can know him. We can interact with him. If you think of God only as God with generally, with all three persons sort of dissolved in your mind, you know, just God generally, then you're impoverishing your spiritual experience because Scripture wants you to think of God as three persons, including the Holy Spirit. You can have a real relationship with Him. You may have noticed that the book that we're selling this quarter out here about the Holy Spirit is called Knowing the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I think that's right. I think that's the title by Charles Spurgeon. No, and that's to emphasize this fact that you can know the Holy Spirit because he's not a force. He is unique. You can know him. Now, what does that mean more specifically? Let me just give you a few examples of what I mean by this. First, you can and you should worship the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit. You may not have thought of this, again, but um, a very hot-button issue in the fourth-century church was this very thing, whether we should worship the Holy Spirit. St. Basil, one of the church fathers, he had a doxology that he would say during corporate worship, and it went like this. He would say, glory be to the Father with the Son together with the Holy Spirit. You would have no problem with that. Good, because your theology is great. But in his day, there were a large number of people very upset with that doxology because they said, you can give glory to the Father. You can even give glory to the Son. But don't you dare give glory, the same glory, together with the Holy Spirit. They didn't believe that the Holy Spirit was fully God and fully worthy of worship. But we know better. He wrote a whole treatise defending that doxology, and he's right. We can give glory to the Holy Spirit just like we do to the Father and to the Son. And we must because he's a person of the Godhead, just like the Father and the Son are. He is a person. We can have intentional, focused worship toward the Holy Spirit. We can wonder with the prophet Isaiah, 
Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Spend some time and meditate on that and let it turn to worship in your heart. Or the way that I prayed when I began this class from 1 Corinthians 2.10. The spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. When was the last time you were genuinely amazed by anything about the Holy Spirit? It should be often. It should be a common part of your experience as a Christian that you worship the Holy Spirit with a great reverence when you think of Him. It is unfortunate. It's more than that. I don't know what word to use in our day that there's been a mockery made of the Holy Spirit all across the spectrum, but by those who attribute things to the Spirit that the Spirit didn't do. You know, He didn't make the man run and make animal noises and jump in the baptistry. But those kinds of things are often attributed to the Spirit, and it really maligns the Spirit, makes Him seem less than He is. But the Spirit is God. And so, even in our day, maybe, maybe it's even more important that we consciously worship the Holy Spirit and attribute to Him the glory He is due because He is so maligned. We ought to be amazed. When we talk in these next 10 classes about the activities of the Spirit, it's not just for your brain to know it. It's to warm your heart so that you feel a worshipful response toward all that the Spirit does as the Spirit. If parts of today's class feel academic and, uh, you know, whew, too hard to grasp, it's because they are. It's because they are. I, told, I warned you that they are. It's because they are. And you can let that turn into frustration. Say, I'm done with theology. But the way God intends for you to feel about these kinds of difficult theology discussions is strive as hard as you can to understand what you can. The things revealed belong to us, and we are responsible to understand them best we can. But in discussions like this, we will come to the end of ourselves. And you're not meant to be frustrated that the path doesn't go further. You're meant to fall down before the Grand Canyon in front of you and worship and be amazed that there is so much more here than you can understand. I hope that will be your response. I hope, that's, I hope that in my preaching, and I hope that I know that in your Bible reading, you encounter many difficult things you don't understand. Don't let those be frustrations. Some of those are meant to just turn you to worship. And so the mysteries of the Holy Spirit, being a person of the Godhead, are meant to lead to worship. So you can know the Holy Spirit, you can worship Him, you can interact with Him that way. Moving on from that, a question that I've been asked and I've asked myself before is this. Can you and should you pray to the Holy Spirit? That is a fair question because do you know how many times in the Bible someone prays to the Holy Spirit? Does anyone know? Zero times. We don't have any recorded prayers to the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures. Jesus, of course, taught us as his disciples, pray then like this, our Father. Now, we don't take that absolutely to mean you can never pray to another person of the Godhead because Stephen, in his martyrdom, he's dying and he prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, Jesus never taught us to pray to him during his lifetime, so why would Stephen conclude that it was okay for him and appropriate for him to pray to a man who told him, pray our Father. Because Stephen, even if it was an early understanding, understood that prayers to Jesus because he's God are appropriate. And you remember that just before Stephen's death, 
he looked up, the heavens were open, and he saw who? He saw Jesus. He saw the Son of God standing at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so it was appropriate for him when he's praying this almost semi-last prayer, and he's about to die and go be with Jesus. He just saw Jesus there. Maybe he's still seeing him. And so he cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And there's no heavenly rebuke. I said, pray to the Father. There's none of that because Jesus is a person of the Godhead. Is the Holy Spirit a person of the Godhead? Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Therefore, it is appropriate for us to pray to the Holy Spirit. Now, because praying to the Son or to the Spirit is not modeled often for us in the Scriptures, I would say it's probably most appropriate typically for us to be praying with a focus toward the Father, because that's usually what you have in the Bible. But I just want to make clear that it's also appropriate at times when we are thinking of something that is presented in Scripture as uniquely the role of the Son or of the Spirit, to pray directly to the Son or Spirit. To make that practical, you may have noticed that at times when I'm preaching and I'm offering my opening pastoral prayer, I will usually refer to God or to the Father, but if the text refers to some action which is uniquely the work of the Son or the Spirit, then I will pray to the Son or to the Spirit. Or if I am going to appeal that God open our eyes to understand this passage, that's my main appeal, I will often pray to the Holy Spirit. Because as you'll see in the next 10 weeks, that's one of his unique roles, is to illumine or to open our eyes to what's in the scriptures. So it is appropriate for us to pray to the Holy Spirit. So you can interact with the Spirit by praying to Him. Let me give you one last one. And this is one that um, I don't have a great word for. So I'm just going to call it consciousness. A consciousness of the Spirit. You ought to live your life with a direct consciousness of the Holy Spirit. Now, it is true that in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is often working behind the scenes. Jesus said, the Spirit, He will glorify me, referring to Jesus. So the Spirit loves to have Jesus at the forefront. This is why churches that become so obsessed with the person of the Spirit, that it's all about the Spirit, we talk about Him all the time, focus on Him all the time, that's an error. That's not right. That's not the way the Bible does it. The Spirit is pointing the focus elsewhere onto the other persons in love. However, the Spirit is God. He is all over the New Testament. And when you think of this age that we live in in particular, compared to ages in the past, before Christ came, this is the age of the Spirit. This is the age in which God fulfilled His promise to pour forth His Spirit on all mankind. So the Spirit is working among us uniquely now. We'll talk about that. He's working uniquely now among us. So it is very right for us, and it would be very wrong for us not to have a, a consciousness day by day of the Spirit's presence and activity in our lives. And if you just take a quick inventory in your own life, go, do I think about the Holy Spirit very much? Maybe you don't, but that's why we have this class. You ought to be thinking, consciously thinking about the Holy Spirit. Now, I hinted at this before, but this may require more of you than consciously thinking of the Father or the Son. It almost certainly will. And again, a part of this 
has to do with the way language works. We understand a father, and we don't understand the father. He is a mystery to us, but he's chosen that word father and that concept of fatherhood, which there's nobody here who doesn't have a sense of what fatherhood means. Everybody has a father, even if he's not in your life. You had to have a father to exist. You see fathers around you, and then son for Jesus. We know what a son is. You can't live your life and not see a son. You know what a son is. And it's very human, and you can kind of grab, grasp that concept. But then we come to the third person of the Godhead, and this is the Holy Spirit. What is a spirit? When you die, it goes to heaven. <laughs> That's maybe the extent of our thought about a spirit. It's invisible. The King James, if you have a good King James version, always referred to the Holy Spirit as the Holy Ghost. And we have changed because language changes, so we don't use ghost anymore. But spirit and ghost in the New Testament, same word for both concepts. And that's what we mean by spirit, what you would call a ghost. Does a ghost conjure up warm, wonderful feelings? You want to go interact with this ghost? No. Instead, we make up superstitions and all our fears come out in ghost stories you stay away from ghosts, they've come back from the dead to haunt you and do terrible things. And so when we're trying to think about the spirit, even if we're not thinking of him as a ghost per se, there's still that sense that he is distant. So maybe that's one of the reasons we don't think of him as much. It's just hard to grasp that. Yes, a father, of course. I want to be in the father's arms. Oh, and the son, I mean, literally took on flesh. I can see him in the scriptures. But the spirit, how do you interact with? How do you think about a spirit? In the 2010 best-selling book, Heaven is for Real, if you remember that, was supposedly the story of a three-year-old, went to heaven, saw lots of things, came back, wrote a book about it. I don't believe that's true. I don't think you should think that that was true. Uh, heaven is for real. Now, that's true. <laughs> you read about that in the Bible, which is the better idea to do. But you may remember, uh, perhaps you had heard that in that book, that three-year-old claimed that he saw the Holy Spirit when he was in heaven. You know, and he had already interacted with God, with Jesus. You know, he's interacting, he's seeing all. So it's like a warm environment, wonderful, beautiful. Part of why it's had such an appeal. Just such a beautiful picture of heaven. And then he comes to the Holy Spirit. And how does he describe the Holy Spirit? He says, bluish but hard to see. Now that's not true. But that does reflect how we can often think of the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, I don't know what to do with the Holy Spirit, bluish but hard to see. It's like a ghost, like a spirit. But if what we're saying in this class is true and you believe that he is a person of the eternal Godhead, you can interact with him. He is personal, not a force. He's not bluish but hard to see. He is instead one who in the scriptures leads. He's one who uniquely comforts when you're suffering, far from being distant. He's the one who comforts us. He seals us for salvation. He grieves. There's emotion of some kind. He guides. He speaks. We should have a consciousness of that spirit, <laughs> not the bluish hard to see one, but the spirit in the scriptures who's presented as active in our lives, a person of the Godhead. We ought to have a real consciousness of him in our day-by-day -day lives. So as we kind of close up here, we may never know what is meant by person in its fullest sense. 
Maybe not even in the life to come. But it's okay, because you know what you can know? Or who, whom you can know? You can know the Holy Spirit. And that's better than knowing all of the what. Is that you don't have to understand all the theology about persons. and You can walk out of here knowing the Holy Spirit. We'll take that any day over God making all of the details totally clear to us. Do you know the Spirit of God? Do you know the Spirit of God the way you would know an old friend? See them? Oh, you know the Spirit of God the way you know a beloved spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance. You know them. You know them. You know the Holy Spirit that way? He is in the world. He's welcoming us to know him that way. He has the right to desire and to demand that we consciously know him that way, that we walk by the Spirit with a real consciousness. This brings us to the end of considering the Spirit, like I said, as a being, so to speak. But I don't want us, and we'll talk about his activity in the weeks to come, but I don't want us to miss this fact that if he is a person, and he's not the Father, not the Son, he's not a force, that means that you can and should consciously know and cultivate your relationship with the Holy Spirit day by day. Pray to him when that's appropriate. Think on him, worship him, be amazed by him. Come to this class with a heart set, not just to know what we're going to talk about, but a heart set that when you know it from Scripture, you're going to respond in worship. And the only one who can help us to do that in this class is the Holy Spirit himself. <laughs>